Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Nathan Silver. Nathan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely very happy to be here um, and hopefully be able to share some, some insights with uh, all the listeners today. Um, so uh, like Alex said, my name is Nathan Silver. I work in UX. I'm a user experience specialist. Uh, and my background's in healthcare, biomedical research, clinical research, and neuroscience. So I've kind of uh, found a, a pretty unique and, and I think interesting intersection between those different areas. And um, yeah, very, really excited to, to share some of my experience and things that I've learned along the way with, uh, with everybody here today. That's really interesting. So that so you, you named a lot of things within those subject areas. What is the technical um, ability or skill that you work on developing or, or that you bring value through? So I think one of the, the biggest areas is uh, empathy. And I, I, I think for a lot of people, when they first hear that, kind of the first reaction is like, well, what does that have to do with, with technology? And it's definitely been emerging as one of the like big, sexy buzzwords in the world of UX, and for good reason. Because uh, being able to really empathize with the, the people that you're designing products and services for is pretty crucial in being able to make those actually work for those people. And being able to you know, really kind of dig into an individual's like motivations, pain points, goals, all of those things is really important to guiding the design process for I mean, really anything that you're creating from a car to a medical device to a website, and it's it's really widespread. And that's something that uh, I've kind of realized uh, that I'd been really cultivating throughout my time in healthcare, because there's this pretty interesting dynamic within a healthcare environment where for the providers, it's another day at work. And that feels very different from the patients who come in, who a lot of them, you know, this is like, the worst day of their life. You know, there's something that's been going on. It's giving them anxiety. It's stressing them out. They're worried about you know what the testing will tell them, what their options will be moving forward, all of those types of things. And in the my previous role as a, a clinical technician, so I was doing uh, testing for inner ear disorders. I really had to remind myself of that pretty pretty frequently. That you know, for me, this is something I've done a million times. I, know, like, I really understand it deeply. Uh, I know the risks, I know the concerns, all that stuff. But for the people coming in, this was their first time, their first experience. And being able to kind of tailor my approach in, in that setting to really address that was, I mean, incredibly important. And now that I've uh, transitioned into the world of, of user experience, I, I really carry that with me. And when I'm designing a uh, a website, an app, whatever it is, you know, I really try to kind of think of, you know, who is this going to be really working for and how can this work better for everybody and really digging into, you know, like the context that someone would be using that service or app and kind of all those things and really get as uh, holistic of a consideration as possible for everything that I, that I do. Can you give us some examples of, UX errors that um, that you seek to avoid. What are the common pitfalls? And what can you know? How can how can the average listener 
understand UX design? Uh, yeah, so that's a, definitely a good question. And I, I think one of the um, kind of one of the big things is when you're creating something, it it's really easy to just like because you're spending so much time thinking about this thing, developing this thing, a lot of the solutions you come up with for the individual pieces of of that greater project, they'll make a lot of sense to you as the creator. And it's I think it's very common, unfortunately, that people will kind of take that all the way from development to to product release. And that's where a like, user testing is super important, usability testing. And, and that really is like, I'd say like the kind of the very least, like the, if you're going to do just the minimal, absolute minimal amount of UX is to do user testing because you can build something and if you actually test it and let people interact with it, try and accomplish whatever that goal is they're setting out to do with that product based on the kind of the vision that you had, it'll really uncover potential problems, pitfalls, et cetera. And something that I've been kind of thinking about a lot recently is just how the um, kind of the advancement of technology has opened up way more potential for analytics, essentially, and being able to use that information you can pull out from the data to help inform design choices, uh, kind of development decisions, all of those types of things. And it, it really does create a, a pretty cool dynamic where you can learn way more about the products that people are using and change them. And kind of looking back at like, let's say like the like telephone as an example. If you look at um, kind of the pre-texting, pre-cell phone era, there's really only so much you could can do to improve the telephone, like the home phone. And certainly like, trying to collect data on on how it's being used and people's impressions was really challenging. And it, it for the most part, required like very um, like specific targeted research and exploration. Whereas now, if you want to look at you know, screen time, location data, like all of those things that our phones can provide to us that can then be used to inform new features, new developments, new generations of technology, all of that stuff. So it, it's definitely a, a, a pretty cool time, I think, to kind of be in, in this field and, and really in, in tech as a whole. Do you think there will be a time when we use AI to dynamically change a website and A-B test placements of buttons and different colors and sizes to optimize click-through rates without human intervention? Um, yeah, it's, that certainly seems possible. And uh, I've definitely done a lot of kind of reading and, and exploration just on the role of AI in UX, especially uh, kind of in the next few few years or a few decades. And I think there is a lot of stuff that AI will be able to, to do to make the kind of general UX effort a lot easier and faster. But uh, like I mentioned before, there's really this key piece of empathy, because uh, really what UX is all about is connecting people and technology. And there's kind of those small design decisions of, you know, should this button be here? Or should it be there? That 
for the most part, it's fairly easy to kind of use AI to get like a kind of general idea of, you know, this should be good. But then there's things that really require a lot more, say, like context and research to, to be able to implement effectively. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there, you know, unless there's some really big jumps in AI moving forward, I think that get really digging into that like human experience and really understanding the limitations, the the needs, the, the everything that people have. I think that's going to be a pretty tough area for AI to really replace to a meaningful extent. So I think there really is uh, like certain parts of that whole the whole field that really need to be done by people. So give me an example of something that requires empathy to optimize. So let's say for some of these um, zero UI devices that are coming out now, um, and I can definitely talk a little bit more about what zero UI means after this, but uh, like for the like smart home devices, like having an Alexa device or a Google Home or what, any of the other options that are out there, the kind of key part of the empathy in that is, you know, why would someone be using that service, like that that product? And what are they trying to accomplish? And how can you really put yourself in in their shoes? And, you know, if you want it to be kind of the most like bare bones, simple version of like basically asking it to Google stuff for you or play music, like those don't necessarily require a lot of empathy to to do. But if you want to you know, like kind of design a feature that connects those smart home devices with like a smart thermostat. And then that kind of requires that step further of, you know, what does this person, you know, kind of generally like to do for, you know, they like to be warmer in the morning and colder at night, and then determining like a schedule based on that and getting into some of the um, like predictive aspects, which I think is uh, like, it's like really like the predictive and the context-based parts are, are really, I think, challenging to do with AI right now and really require that human touch. Because then you can, you know, there's a way to I mean, come out with a feature that can detect, let's say, like tone of voice uh, when you're interacting with um, with a smart home device. And that tone of voice can then be translated into, say, like a detection of the person's mood. And then there can be suggestions for, oh, would you like you know, a feel-good playlist, or, you know, would you like me to put the TV on to this comfort show that you like, and kind of all those types of things, and really digging into, like, you know, what would somebody want if if they're able to detect that they're in a certain mood or mindset or whatever it is. So there's really, I mean, like, the the applications with of and the importance of empathy in, in UX and technology, it's, it's really widespread. So there's, I mean, just millions of examples to kind of pull out for for that interesting so it's like you as a ux designer are responsible for advocating for what us people need out of technology and the technology itself is not a person therefore it doesn't know it could simulate a person but it does not know what a person wants so it's by definition that we need people behind UX 
because there's no way for a robot to know to the same level of precision as, a, as what we would just know intuitively about what would work. And you could create models that would do it, and I think that's, that was your point, but they would be models simulating people. They would not be a computer being a computer entity. It would be, it would be like, if I were a person, what would I be saying? So, what would I be thinking? So, that's very interesting. Um, like, and, and I love that you brought up the Alexa example, because that is an AI, in, in a sense. It's the conversational AI, and there's no way for it to know. You know, it could use data to determine this feature is working or not working, but it can't say, oh, I, we should build this feature next. People are going to love it. It would, have, it would say, we have a thousand features we could build, and look, I've just built all of them, and I'll go and A-B test every single one. But it's not going to have the in intuition to pick which one is going to be the best, which is interesting. Um, are there any examples of UX in today's modern world that you know, you, you you would call out and say, we gotta we gotta stop it with this. This is a bad experience. One that comes to mind for me is the anti-homeless architecture. I mean, come on, it's ruining it for both the homeless and the non-homeless. The all the all the benches and everything are less comfortable now. So um, I, I think that was a bad direction. And it's, I don't think it's really going to help anything. I think they're just going to go to the ground right next to it or something. I, I, I have a tough time believing the anti-homeless architecture is good for us. But that is a UX decision that they made, that we're going to make this harder to use on purpose. And any other examples from you? Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, kind of unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, and I, I think part of the reason for that is for a long time, you could get away perfectly fine without focusing on the the UX aspect. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of companies out there today that have put very minimal effort into their UX and are still able to generate significant revenue and be viable companies. And it's nice that there seems to have been a pretty big change in that in the last few years, maybe the last decade or so, where a lot of companies are really starting to, to realize how much of a difference that makes. And I mean, just from like small things, like um, not sure if you've ever used the, uh, the old Greyhound bus website. Uh, I think they've updated it since, but I'm thinking back to probably like five to 10 years ago it was the most like frustrating, anger-inducing process imaginable. And by the end, and you booked the trip, like I just remember being just thinking, like, I never want to have to use this again. That was so painful and so frustrating. And from a business perspective, you know, that doesn't really encourage people to become repeat customers or bring it help bring in new clients or new customers or anything like that. And so I think a lot of places really are starting to realize how much of a difference it can make. And there is a, a specific example from, from my own work experience that I uh, definitely want to share. So part of my, my job when I was working in healthcare was doing uh, clinical diagnostic testing for inner ear disorders. And there, it was a pretty comprehensive like testing battery. 
And one part of it, which uh, it's called the the VEMP, which is a vestibular evoked myogenic potential. Don't have to worry about remembering the acronym. But for this test, the way it was administered is that this huge um, like control panel thing connected to a computer, and you'd use that to administer the test. And it was not an easy learning curve at all. Um, and from what I understand, like the general time to train someone to be able to do this full testing battery was like about three months, which is a, a pretty considerable amount of time to have some be able to administer a pretty important, definitely valuable uh, diagnostic test. And so for something like that, where it's not using kind of established interfaces that people are familiar and comfortable with. It was something that was very specific to the use case. And I think that's something that I feel like I've seen quite a bit of where uh, there are solutions that are made that are just like so specific to that one case that it, it really makes it hard for people to pick it up, learn it quickly, being able to you know, kind of move past the like I'd say like the learning curve of the like, kind of the physical part and then start to do the more important part, which is kind of having that more comprehensive, holistic understanding of what this test is looking for. What should I be looking out for in addition to what the test is actually going to provide and seeing like, you know, is has like are the electrodes set up correctly and you know, is this reading that's a little off? Could that be about the placement of the electrodes or for this or that? Or, you know, are the wires being crossed? Like, you know, there's all those little things that are important to kind of keep in mind when you're doing, a, say, like a fairly high stakes test like that, because I would determine whether people would get medication, get surgery. Um, and and so it it is kind of uh, unfortunate that there are so many places that, are, that have things like that, where it's just not conducive to ease of use. And, and it does create a pretty significant burden on, on the providers, on the patients. I mean, I definitely recall having patients who drove in three, four hours away, because we were the only place that even had this testing. And being able to wow. simplify the process, simplify the equipment, kind of all these relatively small sounding changes would make this type of service much more accessible and reduce the amount of um, like delay from scheduling to actually being able to come in and, and be tested and prove the turnaround time for results and for actual getting actually getting treatment all those things so that's that's definitely one that i i think about quite a bit um and and there's yeah, there's just so much potential to be had in in trying to optimize the way that we are accomplishing different different goals through technology. In that example, how would you improve the UI experience of the machine? So I think for that, I mean, if possible, to switch to just a regular computer keyboard instead of this whole messy control panel. Uh, I mean, there's definitely so much that you can do with just a, a screen and a keyboard. And I think that if possible, it's, I mean, it's better to stick with what people know and what people are comfortable with and reduces that uh, kind of amount of time required for training and, and all, all sorts of things like that. 
Um, but I think really like the the future is uh, the zero UI devices because you know really if you think about the way that technology exists in um, kind of in the world today, it's not really a tool anymore. I think for a long time technology was a tool, um, but now it's it's just so integrated in every aspect of our lives. I mean, just to really kind of convey the the depth of that integration, I mean, just think about what would happen if tomorrow all technology stopped working. Like there would be madness in the streets. Like it would yeah. be, everything would, would fall apart, I think pretty quickly. And so I think it's important to really recognize that and try to keep that in mind with the way that we're developing and optimizing services, products, all that moving forward and really trying to reduce the friction between the people and the machines that we really have in every aspect of our lives. Yeah, it's, it's quite the dilemma, I would say. We are definitely overly reliant on uh, technology and I think the statistic, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like almost half of America would be dead in a couple of weeks if we lost our uh, electricity, all, all of our energy. And, unfor and that, like something crazy, it's crazy. It's, it's like an astounding statistic. Just take that away from it, not even the number. It, it's, it's a lot of people. And I think we're definitely headed towards being more reliant on technology and not less. And in this, I love the zero UI idea, except for the fact that it makes it even harder to be independent from technology because it's literally woven into the fabric of the of what we use every day, um, and and it will continue to to be. So it's it's almost like if we wanted protection or an insurance policy against loss of energy infrastructure, some kind of a cyber attack, we would want more air-gapped technology, right? Like, we would want a chat GPT that works without the internet, and we just have, like, thousands of them everywhere, and even if one thing is destroyed, they're still okay. Or even further, maybe we would want to, like, move backwards and make certain things without AI that are really simple, uh, just in case, like, you know, so that, so that technology is hedged against... Um, you know, going all in, like 100% in. But unfortunately, I think the way society is going, we're all putting all of our eggs in the it's going to work out bucket and not enough eggs in the, like, maybe it won't bucket. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't have a question. <laughs> I was just commenting. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I think that the the privacy security aspect, I mean, it's incredibly huge and especially with um i i feel like i end up talking about uh, the Neuralink device that elon musk is working on quite a bit and it's definitely one of those things that it shows a very promising and exciting vision of the future at the same time makes me very very anxious about that future because um, yeah. you know we're already at a point where there's so much insecurity with our, our data. I mean, just the amount of information that we are creating and sharing with people, groups, whoever that we generally aren't super aware of 
it's it's pretty shocking. Uh, I mean, even just like if you have your phone in your pocket and you go drive around town for a bit, I mean, that's being tracked and being stored in some database or whatever it is. And when you think about the difference between, you know, like your location data, which already feels kind of invasive to have just like that available for other people to look at. And then you think about like if something for like Neuralink where it's implanted directly into your brain and it's working on different mechanisms within within your body to to accomplish certain goals and just the yeah just the risk involved it's it's kind of scary um and you know i i definitely wouldn't be signing up to be like a beta tester for something like that but um i think that you know hopefully down the line probably in a, a couple decades once everything's fine-tuned and everything that there will be a way to kind of address those privacy concerns and be able to kind of implement that like say like next next generation of technology yeah can i get on my privacy soapbox for a second yeah go for it i've been i've been thinking about this for a while when is the last time the government did anything that genuinely improved the lives of private citizens i can't remember a time i mean my life has been just as awesome the entire time there's there has not been some law that came out that made my life better um, so, you know, there's certain things about marginalized, maybe smaller groups. I would say I'm just a regular guy. You know, there's nothing that has genuinely impacted me for the better or for the worse that I've been able to see. So, what's changed is privacy regulation. Um, so, th that's one thing that has increased uh, through my life. So, now there's more and more rules. However, oddly enough, my data is even more out there. There's more hacks. There's more data sharing. There's more people finding my number and whatever. So privacy regulation increased, but my data is somehow more vulnerable. I postulate that privacy laws are created to protect walled gardens, not to protect private citizens' data. It sounds like it's helping us. But it's not. It's not making any difference. The companies are still collecting whatever they want. The lawyers are still finding terms and conditions to trick us into giving them all our data anyway. It is not helping us in any way. It is only helping walled gardens keep their data behind their walls and so they don't have to share it because they can't. Because then it's, you know, it's bad for their people to share their data. That's total crap in my opinion. It's to keep the data within their walls and to continue to profit off of it. Because if the, the company has the data, then they own the results. They tell the companies, yep, look how, look how many impressions you got. Isn't that amazing? Look how many people clicked it. And the company's like, who? Who did? They're like, due to privacy regulations, we can't tell you who. We're, just trust us. <laughs> There's 2,000 people who are looking at your stuff and buying. And they're like, no, tell us. And they're like, no. And then they send lobbyists over to Washington to make it even harder to share that data. So I think it's important to, to, to like really think about from a first principles perspective, do privacy regulations actually increase our own privacy? I think the answer is absolutely not. Yeah, no, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think that there's a pretty, pretty deep issue with, I mean, just kind of related, kind of circling back to the the UX part specifically. 
um, of a lot of times that kind of empathy, consideration for customers, clients, whoever it might be, a lot of times that does come at the the cost of some sort of uh, like financial compromise. And, you know, there's always ways to, you know, prioritize revenue over, you know, privacy or safety or whatever it might be. I mean, that's that's nothing new, but um, it, it I think it does, uh, you know, kind of explain a lot of the I guess, bad UX that's out there. And it from my perspective, it feels like a very like short sighted approach. Uh, because once you kind of abuse certain things enough, people will get turned off from it. And I think, I mean, that might be the way things are going with data privacy. I think especially with some of the, the big, say, data collectors um, out there, like kind of some of the big social media companies that are able to yeah, really collect way more stuff on, on all of us than, than they should be. I think there is a certain breaking point out there where people will either stop using those services or kind of demand a, a more uh, thoughtful approach, I, I suppose. I hope so. I hope so. It's very optimistic of you. <laughs> I try to be an optimist. It's a little easier that way. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of UI, how, how do you feel about the opt-in opt to the GDPR, you know, the little thing at the bottom of every website? You must not like it because it's an extra step. It's just a bureaucratic red tape. Nobody even cares. Everybody clicks accept anyway. So it's kind of needless, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... a. Uh... It's a, a t it's like a step in the right direction, I suppose, of kind of increasing that transparency. But it does kind of feel a little similar to, you know, the like really long, like 200 page terms and conditions uh, document that you could just click accept at the bottom and you're good to go where it's like, you know, they told us everything they're going to do, but is anyone going to look at it? Is anyone going to understand it if they do look at it? Does it actually provide transparency? I think that's kind of the, the important parts to consider. Uh, but like I said, I think it is a step in the right direction. And and I think for, for myself, like I'll, I think it kind of depends on the mood I'm in. If I'm on a website and it's like, you know, accept all cookies or, you know, customize what you want. <laughs> so generally it's like, yeah, whatever, accept all. But now, if I'm in, I guess, the right mood, then I'll say, okay, I'll actually pull it up and say, okay, only necessary, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. and so it's, yeah, step in the right direction, definitely not enough. Now, I'm trying to think about all the different user experience things that happen in my life. And, if you know, you know bad user experience is a smelly staircase. You know, you get into the staircase, public parking garage or something, and it smells bad. It's a bad user experience for me. It smells. You think about that ever when you're doing user experience? Like, maybe there'll be a smell. You got to be careful. Uh, so, 
not not necessarily in that that specific context, but there's <laughs> definitely other things of um, like. So I, I spent, uh, spent a few summers in, in Tel Aviv, and the way that the city was built is actually it's it's kind of a good I'd say like UX case study in a way. So it's it's on the water, and most cities that were built on the water like that, especially in hot places, the streets run um, is perpendicular to the water. So that way, when the sea breezes come through, they kind of clear all the bad air out of the city, keep things a little bit fresher and cooler and things like that. Well, Tel Aviv is kind of built per, uh, like parallel to the water. So it kind of traps in like the heat and the humidity and doesn't really get the relief from the, the breeze as much. Uh, so that's one that I, I've, I feel like it's kind of similar to the smelly staircase situation where- Yeah, that's interesting. It's wow. Like, how, did, how did nobody think about this? Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's definitely definitely a lot of, a lot of stuff like that. Um, and I, I recently came across this statistic that I think is both shocking and, and also quite interesting. So um, the statistic is that 90% of industrial accidents are blamed on human error. And that kind of leads into a, a pretty important question of, you know, how much of that error really is on the, the person. I um, mean, like if you're, uh, let's say, like going, kind of thinking of um, like the Three Mile Island uh, nuclear uh, plant disaster. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of the control panels in the in the control room there. It's a mess. And they made a documentary about that, right? I, I think I saw like a series about that. Um, possibly. I'm I'm not sure. I haven't I haven't seen it, but. But it's like one of those things where like, you know, at first glance you hear like, you know, there was this emergency and there was things weren't done in the control room that needed to be done to avoid this. And your first reaction is like, oh, like the technician screwed up or like you know, whoever, whatever the, the title would be for the person working there. Then you consider that they're kind of set up to fail in a way where they had a control system that wasn't intuitive didn't provide much feedback that was necessary to avoid potential disasters like that. And I think that comes up a lot uh, where people are kind of, in a sense, like set up to fail based on the tools that they're given. Uh, because something that I think is is pretty well known is that humans are not perfect. Like we make mistakes a lot. And we've created technology that, for the most part, requires very precise input. And it's kind of a, a silly dynamic that's emerged because we're, we've created tools that are built for the way that we wish that we were and not the way that we actually are. Wow. And, and it, it is a tough challenge to really overcome, certainly, but it seems like a really important, really valuable consideration to try and make things for how we actually are and not how we, we want to be. Um, and that's where I, I see a lot of kind of interesting potential with things like Neuralink and some of these other more integrated pieces of technology yeah. uh, is that it, 
it really kind of addresses that that pathway from intention to action. And you know, even like thinking about stuff like I don't know if you've ever tried to put an image in a in a Microsoft Word document. Oh. <laughs> you know exactly don't even try be exactly how you want it to look but going from from that intention to completing the action successfully can be way bigger of a headache than it should ever be in any reasonable any reasonable I do the tight wrap <laughs> you got to do a tight wrap exactly so being able to <laughs> Yeah, like really streamline that process from from intent to to outcome. It's certainly a, a, a tricky challenge, but I think that's where kind of the the real value and advances in technology lies. Yeah. For the most part, the the world caters to the lower IQ on the bell curve. So as long as you're at least average, you're good. Like you're not going to really mess that many things up because the world has to be made for everybody to be able to understand and interact with it. And that's why we see so many things that are so intuitive. You can't even mess it up. Like you, tr you can try to mess it up. You're not going to mess it up. It's just obvious. It's, it's too like too. it's just all easy. Like even in mistakes, there's like a catch. There's a net beneath for, for the mistakes that may be made. So that, that makes me think of um, one of my, like say, somewhat favorite um, like areas where UX is super important is uh, in airports. So you think about the types of people that are relying on signage in the airport, you know, to get to baggage claim, to get to their gate, to find a restroom, whatever it is. Like there's a reasonable assumption that these people are, you know, tired, groggy, maybe a little irritable or anxious, and generally just not at their tip top highest functioning selves and kind of using that information to make it really easy to find the places that people need to go in in an airport setting and having good signage multiple languages if, if necessary having kind of people around who can provide like help desks and things like that in places that are are necessary like that's usually something you see in like like by like baggage claim where it's like, oh, you want to get a cab? This is the way you go. You're trying to take the shuttle this way. Someone's getting you. You know, go over, go over here to really like kind of meet people where they are. And that, I, like, I think that's really the the key part of it is meeting people where they are and not where you want them to be or or hope that they will be. Mm -hmm. That reminded me of uh, I think it was like a Discovery Channel thing a long time ago. And they had posed the question, how do we mark nuclear waste, toxic waste, some kind of a toxic waste, for, to warn humans a thousand years from now, or 10,000 years from now, when they may not share our language or symbolism? How do you tell them to stay away from this thing, assuming they don't have a way to just intuitively under no they don't have like a a detection device right we're trying to help them so they don't build you know a nursery on top of a nuclear wasteland right we want to find a way to stop that so 
they were, and I don't remember what they came up with. I mean, obviously, I, we know what they came up with. There, you know, we know the universal hazard, toxic chemicals thing. But how would you approach that as an example? You want to create a symbol that transcends language. How would you think about that? What, what, what do you, as a U, UX person, jump to first? Yeah, so definitely the first place that I think my mind went with that was thinking about those um, like poison control stickers that um, I definitely remember from from my childhood, um, where it's like the like the icky face that's like kind of like getting <laughs> sick and and it was tailored towards kids. So I think it is kind of a a good way of um, kind of comparing situation where there's people with different language, different understanding of symbols and cultural references to kids who are still kind of in that learning process and, and don't have that same familiarity and grasp as as adults would. So kind of going to those like very like most like kind of core basic mm. like emotions or expressions to try and get that message across. And I, I think it it works really well with those like poison control stickers because it doesn't take someone with a really, you know, wide knowledge base to be a, a face of someone who looks violently ill and say, okay, maybe I don't eat that. Uh, and so for something like with nuclear waste, I mean, having <laughs> who's like you know looks like they're in pain or dying or sick or something like that i think that would be able to most likely carry through any sorts of like cultural changes or shifts in language and things like that wow yeah because the the hardware we're running is thousands of years old but the software could change completely. I mean, we, we don't know what the Egyptians were running. I think they were lifting the bricks with sound. I don't even know what they were up to, okay? It's crazy. We don't have that technology. Like, they were just like us in the sense that they had so much technology, meta-technology, technology on top of itself, that when they lost it, they lost it all. But they, we know they had some advanced stuff that we don't have today. So it's, it was just in a different realm. Like they took a different branch of innovation. We discovered the nuclear bomb. Okay, they might have discovered something else that was equally powerful that was used for their civilization. So I'm, I'm curious what it was. And I, I, I think that that just happens to civilizations as we all inevitably double down on our technology until the point where none of us can build what we have today. And, and so if we were to lose it all at once, that would be it. We would have to start all over again, and then we would take a different path. It's kind of beautiful. I mean, it really is. It's like a natural selection, but it's it, with a species and a within a species for a culture. Like the culture of a species is what's being selected, and to technology. And if it's strong enough, it survives. But if it's weak in the sense that maybe it is too complex for the, you know, for any network uh, point, for any one person in our network of people to do, and it becomes over leveraged in that sense, then that is a weaker technological build, right? So like, if, you know, that's how a species would work. If, if it were too over leveraged in one particular climate, and then there's like an ice age, and it's wiped out, um, it should have been able to be to, to be in different climates, for example. So our technology, we should be scaling down. At the same time we're scaling up, we should also still be making calculators like we did 
40 years ago. And certain things like this, the way we used to do analog, just in case, you know, why not? I think we should have, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I think we should have states devoted to different decades. Like, half of uh, Montana is now in the 1990s. And nothing before the 1990s or after is allowed. Everything is just the 1990s. The manufacturing, the technology, everything. And then we're going to take the southern part of California and make that the 80s. Everybody dresses like it anyway, so who cares? And, and that's it. And that's our A-B test of technology, of society, of culture. And we can see how it works and we can test, okay, do... Do all these progressive things actually work? Because we got the 80s running in California, and they're doing just fine. And their cancer rates are half of what you got in, in let's say, Pennsylvania. So what's going on? Um, and so I, I think we, should, we shouldn't all be on the same level of technology. And this would be opt-in. The Amish already do it, and they're doing great. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think they're, like, and that definitely would be a, a, an interesting... Uh, thing to be able to kind of test out and and really really take a look at, but I think one of the potential problems with something like that is even though the kind of risks and the problems that exist with our current technology, like, even though those are very kind of present and like all these new problems emerge as technology evolves and changes, it definitely provides a much higher level of ease and comfort than I think any previous generation of technology ever has. And that's a pretty difficult thing to, I guess, convince people to give up or to compromise on. Because um, we're, I mean, we're definitely at a time where we want things to be easy and immediate. I mean, think about the last time you ordered something on Amazon and you're couldn't believe that the delivery time was going to be five days instead of next day. Uh, and I think that's pretty telling of just how a lot of people do interact with technology these days where they expect immediate, perfect uh, uh, results. And and that's something that the, the earlier generations of tech definitely did not do as well. Uh, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking of like some of the computers that um, a lot of universities had in like the the 80s where you know you put in some input and then you come back a couple hours later to see what it was able to spit out for you and how wow. just terribly different that is from now where you know a web page takes more than you know half a second to load and you're like frustrating yeah. frustrated and like tapping at your screen of like come on work what's wrong with you <laughs> um, yeah. so that's uh, i think that would be a pretty tough hurdle to overcome but i mean definitely interesting stuff to think about for sure yeah and the reason i'm saying that is and, and i agree it's it's not it but it's close the reason i say that is because there will be a reckoning the life people say life isn't fair i think life is fair i, I think in the way we don't want it to be it's fair in that everything equalizes eventually um, if there is any phenomenon that goes too far in one direction, there will be an opposite phenomenon. Like, we just see that culturally. Um, and, and there's a great balancing. 
um, if we are to, and, and right now we are massively over leveraged. We're all using technology that we have no idea how it works. We have no idea how to, to rebuild it. And eventually this will catch up with us. So I think it's either we start coming up with contingencies now when it's comfortable or we all lose the comfort. So it's either some people lose the comfort and are like the Amish are doing great. Like we need more. Maybe we have an in-between. That's what it's like an in-between Amish. You know, I don't want to be Amish. I want a washing machine. But give me a washing machine from the 80s when they didn't break. They lasted for 20 years. We need more of that. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we need to find a way to preserve some of the older technologies. I could build a washer from the 80s. Okay, if you gave me an instruction manual, I could not build, like you could probably build it from scratch too. I mean, these things were simple. They're simple, very big machines. You need copper wire, blah, blah, blah. But with the cell phone these days, I mean, you, you could create a microprocessor, you know, it's not, it's not possible. You can't build that in a forest. You can't build a washing machine in a forest either, but you get the point. It's much simpler technology. So I'm trying to think about it. Like, what? how can we help society um, from being too over-leveraged? You know, I feel like I've, I've kind of thought about it at times, especially when people have, like, you know, like uh, as many smart home-type devices as possible. Like, even, like, I've seen those, like, smart refrigerators that... I mean, I'm sure they can do some things that are very convenient and very nice, but just the the thought of like your internet goes down and your refrigerator stops working is just like a kind of crazy situation to even imagine putting putting yourself in. Uh, but but I think there there have been maybe some steps in the right direction to kind of reclaim some of the the things that earlier tech did well. So. Like one of the things that comes to mind is the whole um, like right to repair for. Uh, oh yeah, I love you're computers. so right. Yeah, because um, that that really is like a, a huge thing. It's like it doesn't make any sense to build devices that when one piece, you know, ages out or you know dies out, that you have to replace the entire thing. And especially with you know the cost of phones and computers these days, it it really doesn't make any sense to spend you know, thousand plus dollars on something that you can use until the battery dies out. And instead of being able to just pop in a new $20 battery, you have to spend another thousand plus dollars and be locked into some contract where you're paying hundreds of dollars a month for you know, however long. And, and not to mention all of the like environmental waste and stuff like that. So I think that that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, and, you know, and I, I really have a hard time seeing people kind of moving back to simpler devices, but I think at the very least having the fixable, more um, understandable devices, I guess, um, could be a, a part of that uh, kind of moving forward. Yeah, it would. It, the government would subsidize it. It would be. It would be incentivized. It would have to be like. This little town, you know, everybody gets paid like crazy amounts and they're just like doing some old like hammer, you know, ma manufacturing like the old way just to preserve. It's like a museum, like, you know, it's preserve it just so that we have it just like on record. Like this is how we do it in case it all fails. 
we know how to do all of the things. We can build all of the things. It's, it'll be okay. I don't feel secure, you know, yet. I don't feel like we have. Maybe we do. You know what? I bet there is. I'm not the only guy to think of this. I bet the government has some secret project that, like, if all else fails, how do we rebuild? I'm sure they thought of that. So that actually that makes me think of um, one of my, my favorite books. Um, it's called Earth Abides. I forget who the author is, but it, it's kind of kind of goes through a lot of that type of stuff of like kind of those types of questions where basically this guy is like kind of a hermit living out in the woods and um, some plague came through and killed like 95 percent of people on Earth. And, and later in the book, he's he has like a small group of people he's with and they're kind of rebuilding society to a certain extent. And there's a one chapter where he's like standing in the library in the town that's now deserted and looking around at all the books and thinking like, you know, what, what's worth keeping and, and retaining. And if I remember correctly, basically he said not much. Um, and, and I think there's something to be said about that. I mean, I'm I'm a big uh, fan of camping and hiking, and and I feel like anytime I'm I'm camping, I you know realize you know how much you actually need to kind of survive and to to be in a state of relative comfort. And you know, we're I think in general we're, we're all quite spoiled these days, just with all of these these things that we've come up with to make our lives easier in almost every aspect and yeah. i think it it's kind of important to have that reminder of you know we don't we don't need to do this i mean we need these things for the way that the world is today for sure but the way the world is is quite dynamic and it kind of depends on on the situation we're working with and you know needs can be very um very dynamic as well of what we need in the situation and kind of based on how society is and all that stuff. Um, so it's, it's definitely fun stuff to think about and uh, to kind of take that like zoomed out perspective of the way the technology is and, and the way it's impacting society and saying like, you know, what of all of this, like what is good and what is bad? Like what, what should we really hold on to? What should we really leave behind? Uh, definitely tough questions, but certainly very interesting to, to talk about. Yeah. We need both. We need two things. One, we need a, we need indestructible AI marbles. It's like little AIs that no matter what, they'll last for a thousand years. And you just like, you're like, hello. <laughs> and then it's just like, hi, this is humanity. Like we, I have all the human information and you're like, wow. And, then, and they're everywhere. They, you know, we just like make billions of them. And that's like how one way, like even if there's like an asteroid impact, we're going to have a few of them on the other side of the planet. They're going to survive something like that. That's the first one. And the second is have a backup plan in case they all break and have some kind of like a, you know, some kind of a, a paper written down somewhere, not even paper, like written on metal or something uh, about how the main things work. Now, I don't know how we even got here. I clearly have some things to work through with my own existential questions, but I want to thank you, Nathan, for coming on. This is such a great podcast. This is absolutely probably my favorite podcast ever. So thank you so much for joining, thanks, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll talk to you all soon. Thank you.